1: This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, it's 1970, everybody, and we're going down, down, down beneath the planet of the apes. The year, 3,955. Charlton Heston as Taylor, a 20th century astronaut, space wrecked in the incredible future. Linda Harrison as Nova, a savage beauty from the enslaved and voiceless human race. They're marked for target practice. James Franciscus as astronaut Brent on a reckless mission to rescue Taylor, trapped by the swaggering, brutal master race of apes who dominates the Earth, a planet shattered by the atomic war of a distant, forgotten past. Planet of the Apes, Andy. We're going underneath it. We Uh, are going under. There are still apes. There are still apes, or very clearly people in ape suits, (laughs) ape masks.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. The budget allowed for them to keep the ones that they had had from last time, and make a few additional, and make a few additional new ones. (laughs) Uh, You know, select few like General Ursus. You know. But then, yes, this one is where the budget cutbacks really start to show <laughs> because <laughs> it's particularly noticeable in the orangutans and the and the chimps when uh, Ursus is having his little uh, powwow and he's kind of riot, riot, riling the troops up, right? Right, right. And you keep cutting to the different groups as they're all kind of separated. And man, there are some, especially when you see, oh, well, there's Vera and Cornelius sitting in a group. Of <laughs> sitting right next to a bunch of dead Tim plastic costumes.
1: faces. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Why do they hang around? Why do they consort with such vacant, expressionless <laughs> alien monkeys? <laughs> I expected so much oh. more from them. Oh, so funny. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's
0: funny. This is a movie that I have so many problems with, but this is a movie that it it just from my childhood um i ended up seeing quite a number of times on tv and so as cheesy as it is this is one of i i guess you'd say i, I guess you could call it a guilty pleasure but i think that it still has a lot of love um it's so i don't know if it's completely guilty but it certainly is a film that is a of a lower production quality and uh, you know you can you can really see the the b-movie elements really kind of shining through in this one and some of the, the the poor writing and some of the decisions they had to make with low budget and everything but i can't help but
1: still really enjoy it <laughs> really really <laughs> yes, yeah, here's, really here's my problem and this is what i would like you to talk to me about because i i feel like Uh, If anybody I know is going to be able to see through uh, the nonsense of this movie, it's going to be you, Andy. It's going to be you. What is this movie trying to say? The last movie, there is so much going on, uh, you know, with regard to statements about culture and religion and science and uh, intellectualism. uh, All wrapped up in this, what otherwise could be a, a nonsense story about, you know, the apes. This movie seems to be so much about the nonsense story of the apes retelling the action of the first movie right astronaut has to learn all the same lessons about oh my god it's a city of apes we're learning all that stuff again but but it seems like it's empty of of resonance statement it isn't it is otherwise an empty shell of a movie compared to the first one so tell me what you get out of this movie uh, if, if anything uh that that makes it stand uh, you know next to the first
0: I don't think that it, that's a, a fair statement. I think there is more going on with this film than that. I just think it may not be um, as strongly constructed. I think this film it, it is still doing stuff reflecting the times with the protests. You've got the the chimps all protesting, kind of this this idea of war, um, and you know, very much reflected of the times of the the late '60s here in the U.S um and not to mention uh Paul Dane who they ended up bringing on board to to write it was very much somebody who had kind of been vocal with kind of the, the uh uh anti nuclear arms race and just the the devastation that could come from that and i i think Largely, he was brought on very specifically because of that, and you, I th- I find that you really see that as we build into the ending and this idea that uh, the this nuclear might um, is this devastation, and you know, as as people, we kind of you know worship this idea of having these devices that technically can destroy the world, but it's some weird you know, thing that we have so that we can, you know, beat everyone else. And in this particular case, I mean, literally, you have these underground mutants kind of worshipping this bomb. And in the end, uh, it gets set off and does destroy the planet. So I,
1: I yeah, think Yeah, you that, know, that's fair. That That's fair. I think the end, particularly the literally worshipping the weapons of of doom. Yeah. <laughs> is, that's, right. That is, you're right. That's a clear statement uh, that the movie's trying to make. I hate the telepathic stuff. I think that's nonsense.
0: Oh. I do too. It's, and it's, it's one of those things that really just serves no purpose because, yeah. um, even when they start just, well, one, they say, well, we always speak when we're praying, um, and, and worshiping our God. And we do see that, but then they speak to Brent saying, oh, well, we we'll, we can speak. We just don't like to, but it's such a lower form of communication. Um, but then they still do it while they're by themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, right. okay. It's it's bad writing when it comes to that, you know. It's it ends up not working because uh, you've just told us that these people look down on it, but here they are doing it. So
1: I mean, it starts exactly where we left off in the first movie. So so much in the first movie that uh, Roddy McDowell's actually in it for, for, for a brief <laughs> brief uh, bit. Uh, the archive footage from uh, Planet of the Apes, and it picks up from there. Taylor and uh, his mute uh lover or horseback they then they continue their exploration beyond the uh, lady liberty and it turns out ansa has sent a following spacecraft yes what do we think of that? <laughs> well, if you couldn't buy into
0: Taylor's ship uh, turning around and ending up on Earth in the first film, you're really going to have problems <laughs> with the fact that, that Brent's ship does exactly the same thing. It's, right. it's pretty ridiculous. But again, it's one of those things. It's just the conceit of the story. And, and for me, it's just stuff I buy into because I know that that's just what the story needs. And so I, I don't end up having a problem with it. But yeah, I can see why people <laughs> might really... <laughs> like you might have real issues with the fact that it works out (laughs) well you you were the one who had the problem with it in the first film
1: i did i had a problem with it and predictably andy i have a problem with it here i think it's ridiculous (laughs) and i you know you make another point that you know how how is it that these astronauts (laughs) the the ship's captain is surprised that his family's dead (laughs)
0: Oh, dear, yes.
1: ANSA, the uh, American Space Agency, whatever it is, uh, is really terrible at conditioning their astronauts for long-term space exploration. I, I, I think they're like tricked with the donuts. <laughs> and they, Something. And put on the spacecraft before they know what they're getting into. It's kind of yeah. a multi-level marketing thing.
0: <laughs> 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 yeah. Taylor in the first film seemed to have a good idea. But but even some of the astronauts in the first film seemed a little surprised you yeah. know, when, they, when the realization hit them. But man, this this captain here really just is like, what?
1: Yeah. What? <laughs> How is this possible? Brent is, uh, as I like to call him, Heston, too. Uh, right. it, it, it's just put a beard on Charlton Heston and tell him to act exactly like Heston did in the first one. And you have this movie.
0: Yeah, James Franciscus, uh I believe he was kind of more of a, a TV actor and uh brought on to to lead the charge here. I think Burt Reynolds was uh considered to play the role. Um, but uh James Franciscus ended up getting it. And, you know, I mean he had done some films before this. I, I think a lot of stuff was TV, but like right before this he had done like the Valley of Guanji. So he was already in kind of some of those low budget uh, sci-fi types of films um, and you know I don't know I just feel he is really just kind of a, a, a B version of Heston <laughs> so to that end I'm like eh. you know he's never been my favorite um, and you know for me he is always one of the the weakest elements of this film
1: also because Heston is a B version of Heston in the first movie I'm not sure how we got away with that <laughs> uh yeah so uh they do do some interesting things in here and uh you know that some of the stuff we liked the most about the the first movie how they do the the crash landing some of the camera tricks uh they they follow a little bit of that motif in this movie and uh it starts with nova's flashbacks right as she runs into brent and and uh, he sees the dog tags uh, and she starts to remember and interestingly they give nova in in that regard they give her something to stand for more than just as a foil uh in a fur bikini
0: i really like the way that those flashbacks come across the last time we see her Uh, is with Taylor as they're riding uh, out past the Statue of Liberty and out into the Forbidden Zone. And and then when she shows up, she's by herself. And so it immediately is an interesting way to kind of uh, give the audience some questions. But yeah, then the way that they kind of play with that is he's, as, as, as Brent is asking her about the dog tags, and you're kind of getting those flashes of memory of what happened with her. I really found really compelling because it's it's an interesting way to do the flashbacks and kind of let us know what happened with Taylor um in the first place but also it's a really unique way to show that this is this primitive woman who might be having slight moments of kind of uh development like mental development uh, you know and I I find that really compelling because we do see her continuing um, this development over the course of the film, um, not a ton, but it, I, I think it's really interesting where we see this slight change in her um, and it's almost like a, a hint of evolution happening. I really like that.
1: Yeah, I, I actually do, too. And it makes, it, it, you know, it makes her a useful character. Right. We didn't get that so much in the first movie. And here they they, you know, level up Nova. Yeah. And, and I really I, I enjoyed watching that happen. Um, the we we have a new uh, principal uh, gorilla uh, yes. as as the the leader of the uh, gorillas is General Ursus, uh, and we meet him right sort of. I think we meet him first during the big rally scene, right? Right. Uh, right. But then we then we go all in and on Ursus when he's in a he's. They, we go to the sauna. <laughs> <laughs> and uh that's a that's a tough scene to watch for me it feels like SNL.
0: <laughs> it is a strange, strange scene. It's very um,
1: strange. I, don't it, it's, even, it, I couldn't even tell you what they cover in that sequence. I know it's some sort of a, you know, golf club kind of a sequence, but, but it's the suits. And and Ursus is one of the principal characters. Like, you'd think that's one that even with the low budget, we would get a mask that works. But most of the time, his mouth doesn't work. And uh, I, I find it really ridiculous.
0: I, You know, he's one I don't have problems with. And maybe it's because I just, I love the the kind of the helmet that he has, that gi- gigantic yeah, helmet that, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think is such a great look for him. And I do think that's something um, Tim Burton brought forward in his uh, version is that fantastic kind of helmet look for his he is, gorillas. He's much
1: better in still photography. That's true.
0: Yeah. And, and I don't have as much problem with the mouth. I, I think that it's okay. Um, um, I, I find him a compelling character. I just, uh, again, I, I wish that there was, um, better writing involving all of this because I, I, in the first film, we really have a sense that there's nothing that the apes have found other than maybe this, this cave that Dr. Zaius is kind of keeping secret and blows up that it hints that there are people and then all of a sudden now at the start of this film they all of a sudden know that there's other people out there or they 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 have this this sense because they've been sending troops out and i feel like this is probably budgetary cuts um it, it could also just be uh you know writing of the time and i.e not as strong that You know, he talks about these troops that have gone out and have not come back, except for one. Like, 12 troops went out, only one came back um, into the Forbidden Zone, trying to figure out what's going on. And that's something that I feel like they should have shown. We should have seen that, so that Mm -hmm. we could have gotten a sense of that element of the story. It would have made for a stronger uh, discovery, and I think it would have been easier to buy into everything that uh, Ursus is talking about.
1: Yeah, especially to lead up to him leading the charge across the forbidden zone, right? It feels like we haven't established the stakes or the foreboding doom or the the intense need to figure out what's on the other side of it, in spite of all these, you know, simian losses. Uh, it, it's just not weighty enough when they decide to make this march and put Ursus and and you know, um, at the head of it. I, I just didn't didn't see it. Yeah, yeah. It's frustrating. Plus, there are all sorts of problems as they, you know, as they we start talking about the forbidden zone. There are all sorts of problems with the geography, right? I mean, it's it's hard to get a sense of place.
0: Yeah, that's something I, I struggled with more on this viewing as I was really paying attention to how things are discovered as far as the locations. Because Brent, he runs when he and, and Nova escape the ape city. On horseback, they end up hiding from the apes and they find this cave that leads them underground um, and takes them basically to where the mutants live um, under through the kind of the remnants of New York that's uh, Mm -hmm. kind of under the ground Um, yet later in the film when the apes are going to war. They have to march a long way, they cut through the Forbidden Zone, they have all sorts of visions thrown at them before they finally come to this very same hole uh, to get into the exact same place. Um, it makes no sense, geography-wise, and it's it's a real frustration because it's so illogical.
1: Can we just talk a little bit about the visions? So I'm assuming that the visions are from the mutant humans. Correct. Okay. Where were the mutant humans when we dabbled in the Forbidden Zone in the last movie, which, according to our timeline, was just a couple of days ago?
0: Well, they theoretically were there, and they, I guess, would have been uh, around when uh, Taylor and his guys were crossing the Forbidden Zone, and you had kind of all that lightning and stuff, and they're like, what's going on?
1: Okay, Um, so we're saying that that was um, was
0: mutant humans? I, I would assume so, trying to keep them... Going away from them, uh, going in a different direction toward the Ape City. Hmm. In the okay. world of retconning, yes. E- exactly. That, that's You're what right. it was. <laughs> that's, a, that's
1: a very clear retcon. Uh, okay. Interesting. I I found that a, a little bit uh, jarring that because of the timeline, the sort of forced proximity to the first movie, uh, that, that that was the, generous. Uh, in the narrative like we were were really taking a little bit of advantage there but maybe you're right
0: i i don't mind it i actually think that of the different elements that we find with the mutants i think that's actually a a compelling one that they actually have developed this ability to make you see things Mm -hmm. and to play mind games with you i love that about them and uh, much more so than the fact that they um, don't have to talk and they speak you know, telepathically. I think that's pretty silly. Um, this, I think, works well. Um, and I think it's interesting when they're making Brent and then later Brent and Taylor uh, do things and trying to fight each other and kill each other and stuff. I find that really compelling. But again, this goes to bad writing when the apes arrive and they just start killing All of a sudden the mutants are completely useless yeah. and they're just getting killed left and right by the apes, which I think is ridiculous because you even have that one mutant who says, you know, we're a peaceful people. Um, we don't kill our enemies. We get our enemies to kill each other. <laughs> so why don't they do that with the apes? Right. You know, I mean, that's what they're doing with Taylor and, uh, and Brent. Uh, why I granted it's, it's numbers.
1: They do have that one line, though. I mean, that kind of throws that away. That's like, oh, they're so stupid they can't even hold our projections in their head, right? Um, which, which, which feels like uh, we're going to hang a lantern on the fact that we don't know how to get out of this.
0: Yeah, yeah, right.
1: The the other thing that I that bugs me, I mean, to the point where you're talking about, and this is just a missed opportunity that I think would have been a, a better play on these characters and their their potential powers is that they can make you see what they want you to see. Uh, with their minds right and then they're wearing plastic masks (laughs) (laughs) they went to a lot of work and makeup to make themselves look right when they they could just make you see that right i just felt like that was that was uh, why why didn't they uh why didn't they make you see them in looking all beautiful i don't know well and to that point
0: here's an idea instead of you know, giving apes a vision where it's this horror scene of all these apes strung up and on fire. Which, I mean, granted, it was a really
1: interesting visual. Yeah, and that the apes, yeah, they were alive, like they were yeah. screaming at the hanging upside down in upside down cross, uh, you know, uh, formation. Right. Right. Yeah, it was During it was pretty cross, interesting. Down, yeah.
0: Why do they instead don't don't they just make it look like a big wall? And because then the apes aren't you know, confronting it. Right. And if they just see it as as a big wall, they're going, well, we can't go this way. And they turn around and go a different direction.
1: (laughs) Or a cavern or something that is completely impossible to scale. You're right. That's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) That's ridiculous. How do you feel about apes on horses?
0: Why are they... Training, because they're, they're saving certain humans, including, as we find out, Brent and Nova, to use uh, for uh, target practice. But when we see them actually doing some target practice around the camp, one of the things they're doing is they're putting humans on horseback, and then they're catching them with nets and stuff on horseback. Yet we have shown in the first film and through this film that humans are incapable of understanding how to go on a horseback because they're <laughs> primitive. We never have seen a human on horseback except when it comes to Taylor and Nova and then this film Brent and Nova. Yeah. So that's completely silly that they're even trying to catch humans on horseback. Real dumb. Um, they, they do a great job of making the apes look so much stupider in this film than they were <laughs> in the previous film. It's very frustrating. Uh, but the other thing is the stunt work in this. I, I feel really like we're going back to the days of Stagecoach when we when they were practically like they're tying the the horse's feet down and practically killing the horses. Yeah. Here, you know, you, you got some awful stunts like with that one where they're coming at the, the primitive man on the horse and they throw the net over him and it it hits the horse and it like throws the horse like upside down right into the water. It just looked like a terrible way to treat an animal. So I don't know um, what the rules were at this point, but it's, uh, you know, it's frustrating to, to watch stuff like this. And it's something that I know in film they still deal with. I mean, all the way up into the things like Braveheart, they were still dealing with stuff. So, so who knows? I I don't know what they're doing here, but it just looked terrible.
1: All that is resolved in the sequel rise of the planet of the horses. Uh, in which the uh, horses rise up against their simian overlord. I can't wait. Are those equisapiens? They're equisapiens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, I uh, didn't need that visual in my right? head again. <laughs> it hurts so much.
0: You know, one thing I will say, I did feel that there were hints of uh dr strange love throughout this with the the doomsday bomb and i i couldn't help but every time i was watching the scene when when Charles heston goes it's a doomsday bomb i just wanted to have somebody go the bomb dimitri the hydrogen, the hydrogen bomb, bomb.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well the end is uh you know it it's uh it's pretty dark it's a 70s ending for sure uh this movie you know heston blows up the bomb and destroys the mutants and the apes and uh, end of the world.
0: He was excited about this. You know, he didn't want to come back for the sequel. He said, I did my part. I don't know what you would need me for in this one. And so he said, no. And they worked on this script and they tried coming up with it, but they lost Roddy McDowell. They lost uh, Schaffner as the director, who was focused on Patton at the time um they lost their writers and so zanuck came to him and said look we need you to come back come on Uh, we've done a lot for you uh and your career it would be you know great for you to come on board and help and so he finally agreed and he said look i'll do it but just let me be in the beginning and kill me off and and they said okay and then as they worked on the script they said look it, it makes more sense for us to just have a tiny bit of you in the beginning and then you're gone for the film but then you'll come back at the end and you'll uh we'll kill you off in the ending And he said, okay, that's fine. And so he ended up being a part of it. And I I do think it's a strength to have Heston back for this one. And uh, what's funny is this was done at the same time that the studio was going still dealing with the repercussions of all their failed films and just the huge box office losses they had taken on films like star and hello, Dolly and uh, Cleopatra, Dr. Doolittle. It was just a real struggle for them at the time. And uh, this was when um, the Zanuck father and son were kind of, you know, having issues and uh, Dick Zanuck ended up kind of getting canned or, or leaving Uh, 20th Century Fox and forming his own company. And uh, one of the last things he did when he was leaving, he told the writers, he said, just blow the planet up. Just (laughs) kill them all. And I guess Ted Post, uh, who's directing, really didn't like that idea. But um, he went along with it because that's what the studio wanted. And I will say it does feel like kind of another iconic Planet of the Apes ending. Maybe not as much as the original, But I do feel it's it's an ending that that sticks in your head, you know?
1: Yeah, I guess it does. Uh, It doesn't appear at at first blush. uh, Maybe I'm overthinking it to be great fodder for a sequel. Uh, well, and, and yet. <laughs> and yet it does well enough where they're like, well, crap. Now, how are we going to make right. a third one? <laughs> right. What a fun, uh, logical exercise that is. So it, there we go. Uh, I can't wait to talk about that next week. <laughs> this it, it is missing, though, that Rod Serling twist. You know, the first one is so rewarding because of that great Rod Serling twist. And Rod Serling, uh, you know, his his absence in the final result of this film is, I think, notable.
0: Well, they had asked him to come on board as the writer initially. but, uh, And I can't remember the direction the story uh, was that he wanted to take it, but it was not something that anybody was uh at the studio was really interested in. it just wasn't clicking they just didn't feel like he was bringing it and so so that is disappointing and even Pierre Boulle was asked to to work on the sequel but his script um really I mean if you thought um this one lacked that Rod Serling ending that one really would have had no surprises at all it was just basically um Taylor and uh Nova having a son and raising his son and teaching the humans to kind of be a little smarter and fight and then it's a war. It's like a big war film, Mm -hmm. Um, and that would have been really, really lame. So at least this one has some surprise. You know, I I think that that's. uh, I I I think that they were hoping there would be two big surprises in this film. One, the reveal that the mutants um, are actually. Um, horribly disfigured under their faces, under their little Mission Impossible faces, and two, the fact that it ends with the planet basically being destroyed. And, you know, it's not as strong as the first film. And you're right. You do miss that a little bit. But I do think at least they've
1: tried. At least they tried. And and they tried at the hands of Paul Dane. Do you want to talk a little bit more about how he landed this thing?
0: Well, I said a little bit before. I mean, he he was a screenwriter. He had um, adapted. But you didn't works. read any
1: poetry for me. That's what I'm right, hoping. That's right. what I'm hoping will land on.
0: He had um uh, re- uh he had adapted uh, like Goldfinger, the spy who came in from the cold. After this, he uh, does Murder on the Orient Express. He's a he's a uh, a writer who um had some notoriety, and uh, I I think that he was a great choice for this. Largely because he is—I mean, he's not Rod Serling—but he certainly had ideas and thoughts, and had expressed his thoughts about nuclear war um, in uh, several books of poetry. One of which is called "Quake, Quake, Quake: A Leaden Treasury of English Verse," which uh, the art in it is um, oh, what's that artist's name who does like the the Adams family?
1: Edward Gorey. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The like line art lithography yeah. something right yeah that really
0: kind of creepy wonderful art that edward Gorey yeah. does um and it's this book of poetry and here's here's an example home they brought her warrior dead she could neither weep nor pray for that same bomb from which he bled had killed her 90 miles away Grim. very cheery cheery stuff yeah here's another one oh nuclear wind when wilt thou blow that the small rain down can rain christ that my love were in my arms and i had my arms again
1: oh my Goodness,
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's all uh, here's another, it just I mean, it's ridiculous they're all short and they're fun i shot a missile into the air it fell to earth i know not where since when for some odd cause or other i've had no news about my brother
1: <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> so you yes. know what uh, i think you would be a great candidate to write our ape screenplay Well,
0: and I think his work really shines through when you hear the mutants singing their their psalms to the bomb. You know, I mean, their their lines very much sound like his poetry. Um, I I thought I wrote one of them down, but I can't find it. Oh, here. Glory be to the bomb and to the holy fallout as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be world without end you know it's it's (laughs) it's very much the same sort of of tone and i think that was uh kind of that to a certain extent that dark strength that he ended up bringing to this so much so that he ends up really kind of on the franchise
1: almost through to the end let's talk about the cast Oh, yes. We've we we we've already talked a little bit about uh, James Franciscus as Brent. Uh, 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 you mentioned Burt Reynolds was considered or had considered the part of uh, Heston 2. He was fine. He got us there.
0: For what the film is, I do think he's fine. I mean, he's not uh, he, he doesn't, for me, have the, the strength of Charlton Heston in the first film. But the film isn't the first film either. And so to that end, I think that in the end, he ends up being fine.
1: I I want to talk more specifically about David Watson. How do you feel he did as a stand in for McDowell as Cornelius?
0: It's it's funny because you look at Cornelius and you can just tell that the face is different. It it doesn't have the same facial structure, even as in the chimp makeup. It still doesn't have the same. I thought that was
1: weird, too. I noticed it and I didn't think I would. Yeah, you really do notice it. Um, I, I don't
0: mind him. I think that he works in place of Roddy McDowell. Uh, I guess it's just nice to keep the, the character consistent. Roddy McDowell uh, was directing his first film and so couldn't uh, come on board this particular project, although he does come back for the next three. So that's nice to see him return. Um, and I guess to that end, they, you know, the part with Cornelius is uh, and Zero, really, it's it's much smaller in this film than it is going to be in the next one.
1: Uh, so, true, yeah. Uh,
0: so to that end, it's it's mostly just the conversation about beating zero. <laughs> it's <laughs> a strange angle for her to take instead of just like <laughs> slipping the plate of bloody cloths under the bed or
1: something. <laughs> I, it was good. Uh, his his role in particular, the the voice uh, was just, you know, there is something at least it proved to me that there is something special about McDowell and and what he sounds like. There is something that is uniquely him. And uh, and and I did find I I missed that.
0: Even and it's funny because even in moments where you know they 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 created such great uh, ape mannerisms, and I really enjoy the way that um, uh, Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter would kind of walk as the chimps, where they kind of their arms dangle straight to their side and they just kind of shuffle forward. Um, It's a nice look. It works really well. And it's funny, I ended up finding it more noticeable here when David Watson was doing it, even though it's essentially the same thing. It just, for some reason, even those little things end up standing out to me. And it's just, it was strange to me.
1: In the role of our new character, Ursus, we have uh, a favorite face, James Gregory. Interestingly, a famous face that is behind a mask here, but man... Uh, he's, he has been in a lot of stuff, uh, and, uh, we know him from the Manchurian candidate. We know him from murderers row. We know him from a lot of television over the course of his 181 credits. Uh, James Gregory, what'd you think?
0: I think that the character is nice. I, again, I wish that he was written more strongly. I think that's, um, my biggest issue with him. And I, I don't know if it's, it's, if he needed to be written more strongly or just, the elements that got Ursus into wanting to wage this war needed to be a little stronger. Um, but I think Ursus is a really interesting character and I, I like him as this, this, uh, you know, this dark guerrilla general, um, even though he might be a little, uh, uh one-sided and, and that's a, a fault of the script to kind of keep him that way. But I, I think that James Gregory actually brings it, uh, brings it out uh, pretty nicely as kind of this big commander.
1: He has such a characteristic or a, such a, a a notable voice, right? I mean, you can hear him that, that sort of drawl that he has under the mask. Uh you can kind of recognize him even if you don't know the name, if you can't associate the name, you do recognize that voice. It's been around a long long time. Uh yeah. I, I, yeah. I did think he was good even in the sauna. Okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Orson Welles um was uh, they thought he would be great. And you know, they had actually Uh, wanted Orson Welles in the first film, but um, uh, that didn't work out in that particular one. They um, offered him the role as uh, Ursus in this film. And he, yeah, back to the comment about about the masks, he said no actor should work behind a mask, which I think is funny because he always had to have fake noses (laughs) in his performances. (laughs) I guess that's not enough of a mask, but... um, uh, I am glad that James Gregory didn't feel the same because I do think that he he uh, does a nice job as uh, General
1: Ursus. Uh, what's what are your thoughts on our new actors that join us for as the uh, mutants? I,
0: in general, I I like them. I, I don't think I have really any issues with them. Um, they're you know some odd names like uh, Albina and Caspe. And Mendez, and Fat Man, and Negro—some <laughs> really terrible options for some of them that they doesn't couldn't come up with names, so they just used some terrible descriptors. Victor Buono, I think, who who plays Fat Man, may be the only one that we have talked about before, if I am remembering correctly. I think um, he so, was in whatever me. happened to Baby Jane, yeah. as the as the uh, uh, man who hires Baby Jane. To, uh, or she hires him to write music for her
1: right uh, and he has been in a, a ton of fantastic uh, fantastic films and, and television shows over the years yes. He's, uh, you know. Um, so he's he's another one of those faces you will absolutely
0: recognize. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, uh, I'm trying to just look through credits and see how many of the other people are that recognizable to me. Jeff Corey is one of the ones that I definitely recognize. He was in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, Little Big Man. He has just kind of with the glasses and mm-hmm. the nose, just a, a face that is very familiar to me.
1: And he was in so many. I mean, Jeff Corey was 236 credits. Uh, yes over the course of his career but uh Mend- paul richards he's not one that i'm as familiar with right and he was sort of the the main mendez was sort of the main telepath but uh, he's
0: also one who's been in a ton of stuff yeah like you look through his credits and he's just he's all over the place
1: uh, again at uh, the end toward the end of his career just a lot of television
0: natalie trundy who plays Albina. Um, she actually is the one who might, um, make the most sense to, you know, have a longer conversation about because we're going to see her quite a bit. Uh, she is in the next three apes films. And, uh, so it's going to be, her credit list isn't as, uh, lengthy as some of the other people, but I do think it's interesting that she does come back in, um, escape conquest and battle
1: as a different character, obviously.
0: She's the same character in the last two films, but she's a different character in the next film. But yes, she never returns as this particular character.
1: Because bomb.
0: Because bomb. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Okay. Milton Krasner is behind the camera, new to the franchise. Uh, And I believe we've talked about Milton Krasner before. Uh, And all about Eve for sure. He's uh, kind of an
0: industry standard uh, DP. I think that he's one of those guys who just kind of had been around and was a studio DP, just working on lots of stuff. This is toward the end of his career. Um, I don't think he worked a ton into the 70s. I mean, geez, he had started uh, way back in the day. He was in his 70s by this point, or he was in his late 60s by this point.
1: And this this was his, it looks like his last feature film. Uh, beneath yeah. the Planet of the Apes, and he went on to Columbo and MacMillan and wife for a number uh, of episodes there, but uh, um, yeah, it, it, this gives us a chance a chance to talk about zooms.
0: Yes. Oh my goodness! Between him and Ted Post, boy, do they love their uh, their zooms. And I know it was something that really took off in the seventies, but oh, it is just too much in this film. <laughs> <laughs> it's dizzying. So it's it vertigo.
1: Zooms. Yeah. So many it of really the zooms just... are from a high angle too, which makes it uh, just and, and impossible tricks of vision is what we have here (laughs) there's no way that like they're using these zooms in a number of areas to to simulate the effect of of awareness right generally of brent as he's discovering the this is the notable ones right the brent discovering that oh my god it's a city of apes and he'll look and he'll zoom and the zoom is like from 50 to 300, you know, and then he'll (laughs) cut back to a close up on Brent's face and then it'll go from 75 to 400 and it just keeps zooming (laughs) into these ape faces and it's dizzying and it's too much. I
0: agree with you. It's frustrating. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I I do appreciate that they tried some visual tricks. It's it's interesting because watching this film, I wouldn't say it's got a strong uh, style of its own. I don't think that he exhibits kind of a DP style. Um, I don't know enough of, of Ted posts career to say it's his style, but it really feels, um, uh, just kind of low budget, I guess is the thing I would say, but I do appreciate that they throw things in, even if it feels out of place, like the, the Brent's POV shot as Charlton Heston kicks him in the face. Yeah. Right. (laughs) It was a very strange shot, but at the, at the end of the day, I found it effective in the moment.
1: And there are some solid motion shots too, particularly the fight on the carriage, right on the on the yeah. cage. With right. the horses, there were some really interesting camera placements and some some tricky ones. Not quite so tricky as some of the other great you know Western um, carriage fights we've seen, but um, it, it was it was solid. It was solid use of of locked cameras and wide shots, uh, integrating into in cage uh, you know camera placement where we see them fighting above and around you. I think it was very cool, um, yeah. and, and some great stunt work too. We should say i mean there's some there's some some good fight falls and and uh it was it was good
0: i particularly love the one coming off of that cage fight when when the ape the gorilla stands up on top and then gets hit by the tree
1: branch <laughs> i know it's like we have this great fight and then go completely slapstick <laughs> zoink scoop <laughs> <laughs> oh so funny That's so good uh we have production design uh, back from the original william craber and jack martin smith uh, hair and makeup john chambers uh giving us the look of uh the apes in particular and morton hack all back from the first movie um and they are working within the constraints of their budgets
0: well and and you know the nice thing about coming to a sequel so quickly is the ape city was still there it was still on the fox ranch Um, and so they were able to just really have that production value already that they had created the first time. And to that end, I think it was a strength as far as the, the rest of the production design, it was low budget. So they had to work with what they had, you know, they were working with sets from other films like the hello dolly, uh, the front of the chapel, they had to use that and kind of create this underground look, um, to, to make this big church um underground and where where the the missile was kept and all that and so they they used what they had and ended up creating something that i think worked for the most part i i think probably most of the money uh seemed to be spent on um the makeup again from john chambers not on the apes but on the mutants and mm-hmm. trying to find that look that ted post really was that was an area he was very um uh, Uh, specific and, and, and they tried a number of different looks for that before he kind of, he had seen in some medical book, what a face looked like when the skin, uh, uh, had been peeled off. And he said something like that, where it's just all veiny and stuff. And I really like the look. I think it's super creepy looking.
1: I, I do, too. I think, in in fact, of the makeup in this movie, that's the you know, of all the makeup going on as much as we celebrated the the apes in the last movie. Man, these the, the mutant faces are terrific. Yeah, um, they are. Leonard Rosenman, Andy. Oh, we love Leonard, don't we, so much? He turns up in the weirdest places. He does.
0: Well, and this is the second series that we've done where, I I mean, granted Star Trek, he's not following directly on Jerry Goldsmith's heels because there's also James Horner uh, in there. But before Leonard Roseman gets in and makes one of the worst Star Trek scores imaginable. But here he is again following on Jerry Goldsmith's heels, um, writing music that I will say, I think the music in this film works um really well i like what he does here and and to that end i give him a thumbs up
1: well as a utility player uh, i i totally agree because he came in and he really um uh, he did a great job leveraging the original film's score it it feels of a piece it feels like it's in the same universe he didn't do too much to um you know to to create something in a wholly different sort of tone scheme and and so i really i like it i think it totally fits it feels like he was working hard to to travel in the shoes of of jerry um and so it works but i again this is not what i'm going to listen to
0: well he does a great job creating the um the kind of the the choral music of the mutants and that's some creepy stuff you yeah, know i yeah. i again jerry goldsmith has done some great stuff like that with the omen um and i think that uh, to a certain extent leonard roseman feels like he's uh, working that angle cre- using that that paul dane uh poetry type of stuff to make these really discordant mm-hmm. songs that these people are singing to their to their bomb
1: let's talk about ted post then uh, you know, this guy directed Magnum Force and Hang 'em High and Beneath the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> he's
0: a, he's had a, a a long career, you know, directing since the '50s. A lot of TV uh, when he got started. I think uh, you know his first feature was probably early '60s, and um, then I, I I think he's mostly a TV director. I don't think there's much in the way of features other than. Um, that and the films you mentioned mm-hmm. um, plus maybe a few after uh, this but not much he really focused on on tv and to that end i i think when you're doing a low budget uh film uh at least back in the day they would look to tv directors as the source for uh for that yeah because they knew how to work fast and cheap I don't know if you'd say that so much nowadays. Yeah. I think I think there's been such a huge shift. But I think even into the eighties and nineties, and I think you could still say that. How to do an award season, Andy. Well it's funny that you mentioned that, Pete. I, you know, I don't know if we've had a film before that has come up with a straight zero as far <laughs> as awards. Um even nominations. Um I, I feel like and maybe i'm wrong but i i'm try i was trying to reach back in my memory since we started talking about awards have there been any that we've talked about that haven't even had a nomination and i don't
1: think i don't so. think we have
0: even even films that were nominated for like razzies and yeah and things like that this film uh yeah it came up with a straight up zero so i think that's uh an interesting point in and of itself
1: that's fascinating i, I feel like we need an award <laughs> but it's like how to do with the box office
0: Ah, uh, well, you know, despite the rush to get the film made uh, to satisfy all those moviegoers hungry for more. Um, as we said, the studio was going through this huge financial crisis. Um, Ted Post originally was given around $6 million to make the the film, but it ended up getting cut down to $3 million because of all of this. That is a final budget of about $18.6 in today's dollars, which is a drop of more than half from the original film's budget, um, which was around $40 million in today's dollars. So it's so a big change from the first film to this film. The movie opened May 26, 1970, opposite films that everybody is still talking about today The Magic Garden of Stanley Sweetheart, which was Don Johnson's debut, and the uh, film version of the TV show Puffin' Stuff. The studios' budget problems didn't stop audiences from flocking to the film and generally loving it. Uh, the film ended up grossing just under 19 million, or 117.8 million in today's dollars. That actually makes the film more profitable than the first one and leaves it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of just over a million dollars.
1: More profitable than the first one. There it is. That's just bananas.
0: Profitable in the sense that, you know, profit per cost ratio. Yeah. It, uh, it cost so much less and it made a hefty
1: chunk of change. So. Oh, I know. I yeah. get it. Yeah, I it also is. want to know how we're going to work puff and stuff into a series. <laughs> that feels important. <laughs> uh, children's shows turned into movies. There it is. <laughs> yeah, I think it's time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can see all the movies we've talked about on this show. Or you can swipe over in your show notes, tap flickchart, and you'll be taken straight to this movie because it's actually in the flickchart database. And you can add it to your list and let's see how it stands up to ours.
0: All right. This is going to be a tricky one for me because I really enjoy it, but I acknowledge that it's a very problematic film.
1: (laughs) It's okay to (laughs) feel strong emotions. You can sit in them and then make the right choice. Yes, like
0: you didn't with (laughs) 2001.
1: All right, here we go. (laughs) Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Fat City? Okay.
0: I'm going to put Beneath the Planet of the Apes on first, but I'm going to acknowledge that Fat City is the better movie. Okay. So I'm saying Fat City.
1: I'm going to go with Fat City.
0: Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Atlantic City? Now here, I'm actually going to say Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I'll give you that. Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Labyrinth? Little David Bowie for
1: me. I think I'm Beneath <laughs> the Planet of the Apes.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a rock, paper, scissors I wasn't expecting, so Me let's too. do it. Here we go. One, <laughs> two, two,
1: three, three. Paper. Scissors. Okay. I don't Robert feel terrible
0: it. about that. I wouldn't have felt terrible either way. Okay. Beneath the Planet of the Apes or The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. In the realm of sequels, um, I'm going to say Beneath the Planet of the Apes.
1: Okay. Here we go. Okay. One, One, two, two, three. three. Scissors. Rock. Hmm. Andy, you're really bringing your A
0: game today. Uh, Well, after 2001, I've been going to RPS school. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Beneath the Planet of the Apes or David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo.
1: Absolutely, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that one. Okay. Beneath the Planet of the Apes or Die Hard with a Vengeance.
1: Die Hard with a Vengeance.
0: In the world of sequels, I will say Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> beneath the Planet of the Apes or Die Hard 2. I will say Die Hard 2. Die Hard 2. <laughs> <laughs> beneath the Planet of the Apes or your favorite film, Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm totally Detroit. I know you are. I'm totally Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I
1: can't believe that. I can't believe
0: it. Yeah. Andy, I know, I know you can't. I just really, really had issues with that film. All right, here we go. Uh-huh. One, One, two, two three.
1: three, scissors. Woo, Andy! This is this a shutout RPS game?
0: It, it is because that's the end. Beneath the Planet of the Apes ended up at two forty nine on our flick chart out of three hundred sixty five. Well,
1: congratulations so. to you, sir, because wow. that was amazing.
0: Why couldn't I do that I two don't weeks know. ago?
1: Boy, you really, you should have brought that. I don't know where that was. Uh, I don't either. I'm just embarrassed. That myself. was a Hall of Fame performance right there. <laughs> what movie are we reviewing? I don't even care.
0: <laughs> well, this film, as as many problems as I have with it, it is still a three-star and a like for me over on letterbox.com slash The Next Real.
1: Uh, for me, it's a two-star uh, I just, I, I, you know, I, I feel like it was uh, it, it was just much more of an empty shell compared to the last movie, even though you've turned me around. You've actually improved my view of it uh, since the my viewing of it last night. It is it, it's too much schlock, uh, but it but it does have it does have something to say. So is that two stars and a like then? Yeah. All right. I'm not going to be watching this one. I, I can give it another thirty years.
0: I'm very much looking forward to walking through the rest of these films with you, then, because uh, there's definitely schlock uh, through them, yeah, and definitely low budget production values. I'm, so I'm
1: imagining uh, more hearts than stars. That's what I'm imagining in the last I, in the I, last round.
0: Uh, that might be a good way to walk into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I don't know. I mean, what's your, is your memory the same? Like, do you have the same when you think about these? Having and I'm assuming you haven't watched these other three yet.
0: Not recently. I mean, right. I, I've watched them all. I've watched. I went through the whole thing probably before dawn of okay. the Planet of the Apes. All right, I so think. it's
1: been actually pretty recent. Right. In, yeah, in I've, the watched, I've watched. i
0: watched them all fairly recently. Okay. So do you have? And the I same enjoy sort all of, of them.
1: You do. Okay. All right. I do. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, that helps. That helps me understand what we're getting into.
0: I yes, can't wait. Yes. I can't either. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash thenextreel, and you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com
1: slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Real.
0: The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram, Ben Lott running Twitter, and thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
1: Amazon giveth, Andy. As
0: Amazon always doeth.
1: <laughs> I think Amazon may have given, have giveneth this week. <laughs> they didn't really give. it. I think they may be back on their game. You want to start? Uh, sure. I, I'm going to do a
0: one star by William G. Carver, who says, when I watch this as a kid in the 70s, I have no idea what literal liberal tripe this was. Don't waste your time unless you want to see today's liberals as the group think monkeys that they are.
1: <laughs> That's good. And believe
0: it or not, two people have
1: liked his review. That was a, and, that uh, was a really, I mean, your attention to detail in the reading <laughs> is laudable. Even the in less. Yeah. That was really, I noticed <laughs> that. I want you to know if nobody else did, I did. You're an artiste. Oh. I have a one star from Richard who says just in case someone gets suckered into watching this like I did, I will not give away details just in case someone gets suckered into watching this like I did. The first half was okay, looked like there was possibly a story that could be forming. Then, around halfway through this movie, it's like the writers had something better to do and threw anything they could together to finish the movie. The ending is unfreaking believable. I was actually mad that I wasted that amount of time that I will never get back. Amazon should have a zero-star option, because I would definitely use it for this movie. The first movie was an awesome classic, something I've always loved since I was a kid. The second, dud. I doubt I will watch any of the others. I really wish I could leave a great review. Alas, Richard could not. Alas, he couldn't. Mm. Unless you consider this a great review. (laughs) (laughs) It certainly is enjoyable reading. It's unfreaking believable, Andy. He was mad. I know that feeling, and that's why I like this review. I know what it's like to be mad at a movie, Andy. To be mad at a soggy sauna sodden ape in a plastic suit. (laughs) I know what that feels like.
0: You're mad as hell, and uh, you're not going (laughs) to talk about it anymore.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Amazon.
0: You know what I got the other day, Pete?
1: Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been, like, decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore, either. I am an audiobook guy all
0: the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at the slash
1: audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season eight, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I hope it's harder than season seven was. Mm, okay. First up, The Odyssey films. <laughs> Easy. 2001, 2010. Okay. Planet of the Apes. Oh, my goodness. Planet of the Apes. Great book. <laughs> 1968 Best Picture nominees.
0: Uh, okay. Well, The Line of Winter, Oliver uh, from Oliver Twist, Romeo and Juliet, of course. Um, was Rachel Rachel based on a book?
1: It was Margaret Lawrence's A
0: Jest of God, also Audible. Awesome. Yeah, we have covered a lot of great movies that started as books.
1: Books like Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls.
0: And Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, both of which were part of our Ingrid Bergman series.
1: So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast
0: is a lot of fun and takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and they have no connection to our content.
1: Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We
0: listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it.